0: Well, good morning. Soon the elders will be sending out a reminder of our yearly uh, protocol for inclement weather. I don't know if y'all experienced the sleet this morning, but I heard something on the leaves about about 8:15, and I thought that sounds like sleet. So I looked out the window, and it was sleeting. So I yelled out to Carolyn at the other end of the house. I said, "It's sleeting. We're all going to die." She said, "What?" And I looked out again, and it had already quit. It lasted about 10 seconds, and so I thought, "What a sleet storm that was! Infamous. It Didn't do anything." So uh, don't let that scare you off from tonight. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker one time <clears throat> that said, if you can read this, thank a teacher. And the second line said, if you can read this in English, thank a soldier. And aren't those the most basic things that we have to be thankful for in our free country is that we have a, a system of education and parents and grandparents and older adults and mentors who show us the way, teach us, the answers or how to get the answers or where to find the answers. And then those people who lay their life on the line and put their lives at risk for our benefit to preserve our way of life and our free country and democracy and all of that and who even go over places, other places in the world to fight for humanity's sake against bloodthirsty tyrants and people who would like to take over the world and rule it in an ungodly way. And our hats are off to all these people who teach us and who protect us and who serve us you know, all of life is like a struggle. It's like a war. It started back in Eden. It's the, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, between good and evil, between life and death. And God had said to Adam and Eve, you can have all the fruit you want from all these trees of all over the garden except for this one. And the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And then Satan came on the scene and gave fake news to them and said, no, you shall not surely die. And then if we continue reading in Genesis in chapter 5, we start this list of people and their, their uh, not predecessors, but what is it? Their offspring, the, the, you see the life of Adam. And we read in Genesis 5 and verse 5, Adam lived 930 years and he died. What an amazing statement. God had said, if you do this, you'll die. Satan said, you will not die. And then we start reading in Genesis 5, and you go down and skip a verse, and just go every other verse, and it goes down through there, and it says, and the Enoch lived this many years, and he died. And so-and-so lived this many years, and he died. And just read the list. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. So there was a big problem that came into the world. Sin entered the world by one man, and death by sin. And now another man is coming a man of promise, the Messiah who's coming to handle the sin problem and even handle the death problem because He has the keys to death and Hades and He opens the way for many sons to glory. And so all these people died just like God said. Now when we get to the book of Hebrews, as Sean has been preaching about on Sunday morning in this great series on on our faith, we read about these great men and women who are examples of faith. It's been called the Hall of Fame of faith. But in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13... There was a verse in there that says, about halfway through the list, he starts talking about Moses and, and uh, Jacob and all these people of faith, and he, and he says, verse 13, these all died. There that is again. Here are all these people that have lived all these generations and all these centuries, and they all do the same thing. Eventually they die, and he says, and these all died. But they died, he says, in faith, not having received the promises. So there were some things when they died that were still unfulfilled. There was this promised Messiah that hadn't come yet, but God promised He'd come, and He did come. Now we have similar promises that this Messiah will return someday with His angels and, and glory and the heavens will open. We know the, the story there, the, the scenes of the last day and the scenes of the judgment. But these people died in faith, and it makes a difference. And throughout the Scriptures, that's the bottom line. and One of the threads that runs through the whole thing is our ability to be restored back to the Father, and Jesus is the way to the Father, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. And so it's the story of faith. And the people who died in faith, even back in Genesis, you can read the phraseology from the ancient Scriptures and the Hebrew text and the way they talked about each other. When a righteous old man died fulfilled in his, his ripe old age, it didn't just say he was died and was buried. It usually said he was gathered to his people, meaning that the home of the soul is there for all the saints together. All the paradise for the centuries until the judgment and the final consummation of all things and we stand before the throne of God. And so in John, First John chapter 5 and verse 4, the writer there summarizes the whole thing when we think about life's struggles and life's problems. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Now think about that. A dictator taking over the world. We have one world government or something. No, the victory that overcomes anything that comes after us. The victory that overcomes the world, that overcomes the flesh. He says, even our faith. And so Jesus would take us back to the basics. He would take us back to the reading, writing, and arithmetic of of spirituality. And so when Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the people that Jesus talked to were just like us. They had different clothes and different fields to work in, but they still had to plant seed and gather seed and all these things. The principles were there and the, the heart trouble that man has was there at that time. And so Jesus addresses the issues of the heart. And those people do very well how to worry. They could look and see Mount Hermon or some of the other mountains in the distance and they could see if there was no snow cap on that mountain, then in the spring there wouldn't be any snow melt and the streams would be dry and the crops wouldn't grow. But if there was enough snow and the streams were full in the spring, then they could plant their crops. But if there wasn't enough rain, maybe they would have a drought and the crops would fail. So they could worry about that or they could think, well, uh, there's enough snow. We're going to have water in the spring. There's enough rain. We got crops. What if there's locusts that come in? Or what if the locusts just come into my field and I lose everything? Well, what's going to happen then? So they could worry about that or they could see there was enough snow, enough rain. The crops are okay and there are not any locusts. This is so cool. But what if an enemy army comes in? My grandpa used to tell hair-raising stories about people called the Chaldeans or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And and what? And I heard there's Romans out there. What if, what if something happens? And so they knew very well how to worry. And Jesus would teach them some of the basic lessons of life. And he said, don't worry. There's no reason to worry. It doesn't do any good. So he speaks to the very issues of life, the things that, that take up our time and our energy. And what do we worry about? We worry about stretching our limited income or our fixed income. Is there going to be enough money left at the end of our lives? Or our, how is it going to come out? What about medical care? What about medical bills? What about if, 20, if our 20% is more than we make in a year? What about that? How are we going to handle this? What about transportation? And what about loneliness? Oh, good night of loneliness. It's such a burden. And there's nothing else exactly like that. And so we stress. We can't help but stress. Our human hearts and our human spirits are broken and we think, There's, is there any way out of this? What, is, what can take care of this? Do we worry about that? What about death? How will it come to me and when will it come? Somebody has defined worry as interest paid on trouble before it's due. Another definition was like this. Worry is faith in the negative, trust in the unpleasant, assurance of disaster, Belief of defeat. John Hagar described it this way. He said, Worry divides the feelings, so emotions lack stability. Worry divides the understanding, so convictions are shallow and changeable. Worry divides the faculty of judgment, so attitudes and decisions are often unjust. Worry divides the determinative faculty, so plans and purposes, if they're not scrapped altogether, at least they're not fulfilled with persistence. But my favorite among all these is this word picture about what worry is. Worry is an old man with bowed head carrying a sack of feathers he thinks is lead. And I think about Jacob in the old days when he thought that Joseph was dead and he thought Simeon was dead and now they are going to take Benjamin also and he, he says to his sons who were going to do this, because he, he didn't know what was happening, and he thought they were all dead. And he said, all these things are against me. I think of David's soldiers In on one occasion. They said, let's, let's go and die in the battle with him. Or Jesus' his own disciples, when he was going to go face danger once again, they said, well, let's go that we may die with him. And their mind was made up that the end is here. Oh, woe is us. And Jesus simply says, do not worry. And in our passage in verse 25, as, uh, after Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and so forth, Then he says, no one can serve two masters. And then he says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, he wasn't talking about not making any plans. He wasn't saying, don't even think about tomorrow as though it's never coming. Don't even plan and and lay up provisions or take care of yourself or take care of your family. But he's talking about the despondency that may set in. And when it does, it reflects on the providential care of God. When we get so worried, we're wringing our hands and distraught and, and can't even pray, can't even think, can't even serve because we're so scared, so worried about what might happen. And Jesus said this in, in Luke 12 and verse 23, right after the lesson on the, the rich fool. He said the same thing, that life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. And yet, we have to have food, we have to have clothes, we have to have shelter. But the whole thing is in this is where is our faith, and how do we remember how we get these things and where they came from? In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, Paul would remind Timothy, you need to teach these things that if any man will not provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. So we've got to work, we've got to plant, we've got to gather, we've got to take care of business and take care of ourselves. But where is our faith in all of that? Our faith is in God who gave us the seed, for planting, and gave us the strength for the harvest. And so in verses 19 through 21, he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. It's so, it's so fleeting. And I know I've talked about this uh, recently, the same overall theme. And just a few weeks ago when Sean was out of town another time over the camping trip, the um, Ecclesiastes lessons there about materialism, intellectualism, and and sensualism and all those vanities and striving after the wind and how they don't work. And this is another thing. Just a few weeks, a week before last, I saw in the newspaper an article about a bus, an old bus that's been converted into an apartment in Clinton, Arkansas. It's for sale right now for $50,000. A couple had decided to downsize. So they sold their possessions and they bought this old bus and took it up there in the woods outside of Clinton and they remodeled it, gutted it and remodeled it into a small uh Space, a living space, an apartment, a little house. It made me think about a train coach that me and my mother and dad lived in in Pine Bluff near the zoo down there in 1951 or 2. It was made into an apartment. I remember that old train coach, passenger coach. Anyway, here's this bus. But in quoting the wife who explained what they were thinking when they did this, she said, There's something about being debt-free and living with just what you need. We bought a lot of stuff we didn't need. And it never made us happy. And it was a lot of stress. Isn't that the same thing Solomon said so long ago? It, those are not the things that really count. And then she said, we spend, you spend your whole life accumulating things, and you have to work and have a place for it. And on top of that, the icing on that cake is you got to maintain it, or it'll rust, it'll warp. You know, I thought I'll build a house out of plastic. It can't rust and termites can't get that, but it can melt and it can corrode and it can do other stuff. Well, I'll build a house out of stainless steel. Well, that don't work. So anyway, you try to figure a way around this and there's something wrong with plastic. There's something wrong with wood. There's something wrong with steel. There's something wrong with aluminum and all these things. They all are elements. Someday they will melt with fervent heat. And I was yesterday visiting my aunt, my last surviving aunt, who's had her, her 90th birthday. She's in a nursing home. And so when I went up to Boonville, I uh, went to the cemetery to see my parents' graves and some friends and relatives and classmates and fellow Christians. And I came across this one. It's Bruce Heslop. He died back in 1996. When I saw that name, I thought, Bruce Heslop? I remember him. He was like four years older than me. So when I was in the eighth grade, he was a senior, and he was a football star. He was built like a stump. And he, if you hit him, it was like hitting a stump and he'd bounce off and he could move. And so when he hit everybody else, it was like a bowling ball on the ball field and he would just knock everybody down. Bruce Heslop. And I went, wow, this is Bruce Heslop. And in the inscription under his name, it says, We have held many things in our hands. We have lost them all. But whatever we have placed in God's hands, that we still possess. And I thought, how cool is that? And how cool is this that I can do this read from a tombstone up here, a message like that from a football hero from 50 years ago, and it still has some kind of eternal meaning. And then the big clincher for me, and I know I mentioned this a lot, and I've told you before, when you listen to a lesson and you say, oh, you've said that before, or we know all this, then the way you're supposed to listen to those lessons is to say to yourself, look at that poor guy trying to convince himself. So just look at it from that standpoint. And see if it works. I'm trying to see if it works. The big question is when the rich fool, when he said, I've got all these crops and I don't have big enough barns. I'm going to tear down these barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll have wherewith to store all my goods. And he said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who shall these things be? Or the New American Standard Version puts it this way. Then who will own what you have prepared? somebody will own it. Maybe maybe death will come slowly enough that you can plan all this, or you put it all in a will or something and you can bequeath all these things, or maybe death will come so suddenly that all this is unfinished business and the undeserving heirs if they're there will have to fight over it. How do we how do we do this? So Jesus talks about not worrying about these things and he cites three examples. First, he says, think about the birds, verse 26. Behold the fowl of the air, they sow not, neither do they gather into barns. The point is here that they do gather. I mean, God doesn't just drop this into their mouths. They have to go out and eat. And just like the ancient Israelites, they had to have their manna daily. And as Jesus said, you need to pray to the Father, give us this day our daily bread. So yesterday's heartbeats, yesterday's breath, and yesterday's food will not suffice forever. We have to have it again today. Benjamin Franklin, standing before the Constitutional Convention, said this, God governs in the affairs of man, and if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? And the point of all this is that God takes such care of the birds, and he makes the point several times aren't you worth much more than they are? If you will, just for a second, turn to number 78 in the songbook. Number 78, and just look at the lyrics. Can you count the stars of evening? That are shining in the sky? Can you count the clouds that daily over all the world go by? God the Lord who doth not slumber keepeth all their boundless number. But he careth more for thee. He careth more for thee. Can you count the birds that warble in the sunshine all the day? Can you count the little fishes that in sparkling waters play? God the Lord their number knoweth. For each one his care he showeth. Shall he not remember thee? Shall he not remember thee? Can you count the many children in the little beds at night, who without a thought of sorrow rise again at morning light? God the Lord who dwells in heaven, loving care to each has given. He has not forgotten thee. He has not forgotten thee. I remember hearing stories coming from World War II that in on one occasion after a big bombing raid and they had these war orphans who were scared to death and didn't know where what was going to happen to them. They had trouble sleeping and one fellow, one psychologist-type fellow looked at the children and saw what they were doing and how they were suffering, and he came up with a solution to help those kids. And the solution was, at night, when you put them on their little cots in the ward here to get them to go to sleep, give them a little piece of bread to hold in their hand and they could go to sleep because they knew they'd be taken care of and they had something to eat. Consider the birds of the air, they don't sow or gather in the barns, but they do gather. God takes such good care of them. And how much more are we in His sight? And an example, too, which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit. One version, the King James version, new King James version, the, ask the question, "Can you make yourself any taller by worrying about your height?" But another version, new American Standard version, uses the idea of adding length of life to your years by worrying. and neither one of them works. worrying about it doesn't make you live longer. It actually works the other way usually, and it doesn't make you any taller or shorter or whatever. The doctor says you have heart trouble. What's his advice? You need to take a month off and worry about this. Just worry about it. Or a farm community. Have you ever heard of this? A farm community gets together during a drought... And they say, we're going to get together down at the co-op or we're going to get together down at the church building and we're going to all sit around in a room together and we're going to wring our hands and worry about this drought and we're going to accuse each other of not knowing how to farm and all this. That's not what you would do. Worry never changes a C to an A. Worry never changes a malignancy to a benign. Worry never prevents accidents. And worry never makes wrong things right again. I heard an old story one time that death is approaching a city. An old man sees him at the edge of the city and says, what are you here for? And he said, I've got to take out 10,000 people. It's my assignment. It's my mission. A few days later, death is leaving and 70,000 people had died. And the old man said, you, what are you doing? You said you came for 10,000 people and there's 70,000 people died. And he said, well, I did only take 10,000. 60,000 were sent to me by worry. Once the word got out, Why do you worry about clothes? For some, their closet's their most important place. For these hearers, their concern was whether they would even have anything to wear. I saw an old lady the other night in a grocery store, and she looked old, and she was wrapped in like a couple of quilts and had a bonnet or some kind of a head covering on, and it was obvious she'd just come in out of the cold, and uh, she was just walking around in the aisles in the grocery store. And didn't look very clean or pleasant. But these people, Jesus talked to them as if you have two tunics then you've got a surplus and you've got enough to share with somebody who doesn't have one. And we worry about what we'll put on and what we'll eat and all these things. And the whole idea is, why do you worry about these things? Consider the lilies of the field, verse 28. They toil not, neither do they spend. Yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like even one of these Oh, ye of little faith, worry is like being eaten by ants. And worry can even have the tendency to make us think that we're not worried enough. We even sometimes think that if, I, if I'm feeling good and everything's going great, then, oh, my goodness, something bad must be going to happen because I don't deserve all this and God's going to get me for this, even though He, I think, gave them to me. What's wrong with us when we get like that? And Jesus is calling it a faith problem and so it's really a matter of trust or faith. And the question is not, has God promised, but rather, do we believe the promises? He's already said He'd take care of us. The old wise people in the Old Testament who wrote about this, the psalmist and, the, and Solomon and others, the Proverbs, they wrote about things like, I have seen, I was young and now I'm old, and yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. The idea is God will take care of us in the basics. Frederick Beechner wrote in the sacred journey about his grandmother. And he described her as a perpetual, habitual worrier. And he described a word picture of her being so worried and so uptight about things that may happen, might happen someday. He said she was brooding like a hen over terrors to come, almost as though to hatch them into reality would be a kind of relief because at least she could come to some kind of terms with them there. And in her dark dreams, she could not. It seemed that she'd reached a point, it's like, well, if if these bad things I'm worried about, if something would just happen, then at least I'd know what happened and I could deal with it that way. But like it is, it's all these things are against me. Something bad is looming. It's coming. It's going to get me. And so the idea that Jesus settles on in the conclusion of all this, He has three decisions we have to make. In verse 32, We have to decide to let God provide. He said the heathens go after all these things. They're all worried, sick about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear. But you've got faith. You don't have to worry about that. And they expect problems. They expect the problem of evil. And the atheist and the worldly person, the ungodly, their problem is not the problem of evil. It's to explain why evil hadn't already destroyed everything. It's the Christian who struggles with why all this trouble. But what do we do with our worries? Do we dream them away? Do we dose them away? Or do we dwell on them? Or do we put them in front of Jesus, defer them to Jesus? Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, Cast all your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. And when we look at the life of Christ and things He endured and the, the examples He gave us and these, these wonderful, simple teachings that are so dynamic, we can see that He does care for us. And He's teaching us that God cares for us too. We also, in addition to deciding to let God provide, we decide to pursue God's rule. That's in verse 33, seek first God and His righteousness, the kingdom of heaven and God's righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. And then in verse 34, He teaches us to negotiate one day at a time. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And I mentioned this here recently, but some days I feel really good early in the morning. And those times are when I purposely decide not to turn on the news first thing and see what went wrong. Because that's what's on there most of the time is what went wrong. Or these wonderful recipes that I can't fix and eat or something or don't need to. Um, negotiate one day at a time. So the idea, the bottom line is, God is interested in you, whatever your problem. It doesn't matter what it is, because God's bigger than that problem. In second Timothy four and verse seventeen, Paul is describing there how many of the brethren forsook him and he was all by himself, but he said, Nevertheless the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. At my first defense some some fled away. Remember Jesus, how people fled away and how he even on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet here is Paul saying, God is bigger than all my problems. And even when he was facing possible death in prison, he thought to himself, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. See, that's the whole idea. It's like it doesn't matter if you lived in ancient Egypt or if you lived in the land of Canaan or if you lived in the, if you lived in, in, uh, Jerusalem and Palestine area or wherever it might have been, or, or there around Rome or someplace, or in ancient Greece, that the idea was when your life came to an end, did you die in faith? And were you gathered to your people? And did you find a friend in Jesus? And the whole idea of getting there is to put your trust and your faith in Him while you're living and not in the things that we have to struggle so much to get and to keep and to preserve and not lose it all and not have undeserving heirs to take it, and of all things, for us to love that more than we love the idea of going to heaven and living with God. So it all begins in the human heart. Where is our commitment? Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So the things we give to God are the things that will last forever. And what God wants is you and your own self, your own heart. I remember Carol Seitz used to tell an old story about a Native American and a missionary had gone among the Native Americans. And uh, he was preaching and teaching about sacrifice and giving to God. And so this, uh, this chief comes up to him after one of his lessons and he says, Here, chief, give God moccasins. And gave him a new pair of, of uh, buckskin moccasins he had made. And the missionary said, God doesn't want your moccasins. And the the Indian was crushed, and he went away sad. And he thought, well, what does God want? So he listened another night as the man preached and talked. And he came up with another gift, and he said, Here, Indian, give God bow and arrow. And he said, Well, thank you, but God doesn't want your bow and arrow. And so the the next night, he comes back again, listens to the man preach and teach. And he says, Here, Indian, chief, give God knife. And he said, God doesn't want your knife. And at that point, the Indian fell to his knees and he said, well, here, just take the old Indian too. And the preacher said, that's what God wants right there. And that's what he wants today is a commitment, a decision to obey him and live for him. You could be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and be saved this very day. If you want to put on Christ and make your commitment to him. Everything is ready. Or if you need prayers for forgiveness or for restoration, you could do that this morning if you want to come as we stand and sing this song that you don't belong to yourself, that you belong to God.